I'm going to begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. To give us context, we will go all the way through the end of the chapter today. This is the word of the Lord. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, or souls, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come into your presence now as we continue in worship by looking into the perfect law of liberty. Each of us here desires to live. We confess to you as we do each week that we are unable to understand your word rightly without the help of your Holy Spirit. He was promised to us that we might be guided into all truth and I pray that you would do that right now. Help me to speak by the Spirit and help your people to hear by the Spirit. I lift up especially those in this room who have carried in this morning burdens, who have carried in this morning fresh wounds from sin and from the remaining struggles with the flesh. I pray that as this text is about baptism and an appeal to God for a clean conscience, that by your Spirit you would remind them of the sacrifice of Christ, that they would repent, and that their consciences would too be washed clean so that they might rightly see and worship you in your word this morning. We ask all this. In the name of the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. In the name of Jesus Christ. And amen. Amen. Well, beloved, in studying for this week's sermon, I was reminded of author Michael Rosen's greatest masterpiece. It is a timeless classic with satisfying prose, a thrilling narrative, and it is guaranteed to be loved by all the children in your home. Yes, that's right. We're Going on a Bear Hunt describes acutely the challenge expository churches and pastors face each week. You likely remember how the story goes. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. 
What a beautiful day. We're not scared. And as we work our way through 1 Peter 3, we come to texts like the one that we're dealing with this morning. Uh-oh, it's a potential theological contradiction. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We've got to go through it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, this is the second week in a row where we will navigate what many Christians today refer to as a problem passage. I don't personally like the term problem passage. Uh, some passages truly are challenging, but no matter what the difficulty, we have no excuse as Christians not to deal with the text in front of us. And that's what we're going to endeavor to do today. What needs to change is not what's changeless. Um, we are the clay. He is the potter. And I mention this because the slanderer, the devil, will try to convince you that seemingly unintelligible portions of the Bible reveals either a defect in the Word of God or a defect in you. Modernity and postmodernity are the twin devil sisters of criticizing the Word of God. They say things like the writing style is so outdated or the language has changed too much from then to now as if they change for the better over time. Or, this author's style of communication doesn't resonate with me. Or, people don't think this way anymore. Or, we can't trust the Bible since it condones slavery and the abuse of women and rape culture, etc., etc. These unholy priestesses must be defrocked and cast out while we, as Christians, sit down in our place as those on trial before Yahweh of hosts. It's the word of God that exposes us to the Holy One of Israel. But for many of you, you trust your Bible. You trust the word of God. What you don't trust is your own ability to grasp what it's saying. Whether you understand it or not, it's in the letting go of the promise that the Spirit will guide you into all truth and in approaching your devotional studies problem passages or not, with doubt and even fear. It's in this that Satan often wins a victory over you in that you try to gather much, but you glean little. Well, little flock, don't lose heart. Fear not, Christ promised you the Spirit of God who would guide you into all truth. What God has revealed belongs to us, His people, forever. He doesn't hand out stones for bread. Last week, we concluded by looking at the first part of verse 20 of 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to begin by looking today at the second part of verse 20. The second part of verse 20 where it says, In which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. I'll remind you briefly what's going on at this point in our study. Peter is summarizing his thoughts. He said that back in verse 8. The road of righteousness, he says, sometimes leads to suffering, but its end is glory. That is where this section about the sufferings of Christ comes in. He walked the road of suffering, he suffered well, and he won the prize. It's an encouragement to us to do the same. I will say this as an aside too, church. I know we've been talking about righteous conduct in 1 Peter 
for some time now, please don't be misled. The only righteous behavior that will get you into heaven is the righteous behavior of Jesus Christ. We are as Christians commanded by God to walk like Christ, to act like Christ. But our righteous behavior merits us nothing before the throne of God in heaven. It is His good deeds alone that lead to our salvation. Bible readers don't get to go to heaven. Churchgoers or weekly tithers don't get to go to heaven. And even baptized people by their baptism don't get to go to heaven. I'm tipping my hand a little bit where we're going to go with this passage in just a minute. But in the middle of expounding on the sufferings of Christ, Peter seems to have maybe chased a few rabbits, if you will. Keep in mind that his main point is to encourage us, through the example of Christ, that our sufferings on the road to righteousness leads to blessings and ultimately to glory. Righteous Jesus suffered for the sins of his people and those were atoned for. He did this in order to bring you to God. Righteous Jesus died and in suffering for the sins of his people, but he was made alive again by the Spirit. And his first task as death-conquering king naturally was to proclaim the defeat of his enemies, which he did to those angels who had rebelled against him before the flood. I'll mention this as well. Last week after the service, um, Aidan Espino had an interesting thought in connection to what we talked about with Jesus proclaiming the defeat of the angels. He said that after reflecting on Jesus' announcement of victory over these fallen angels who were waiting in Hades for the results of Satan's campaign against the seed of the woman, the torment of hell at the proclamation of Christ would have then really begun to settle in. When you think that there is a chance that you might get out, Aiden said, you could try and muscle through the pain. But when you know there is no hope of escaping damnation, that's when hell really begins. And I thought that was an excellent thought. And this gets us to where we left off last week. In it, that is the flood, a few, that is eight people or souls, the Greek word there is literally souls, were saved through water. If you're going to understand what Peter says next about baptism, you need to know what is meant by the sentence, eight souls being saved through water. Well, prepositions can be difficult to understand in Greek, and as always, the context determines meaning. The KJV stands alone in translating the prepositional phrase, daihudatos, or by water. It literally says that Noah was saved by water. This seems to indicate that the water is the instrument of the salvation of Noah and his family. But is that the best way to think of what the floodwaters accomplished? I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. Those of you who have lived in the Knoxville area for some time now might remember the Chimney Tops 2 fires in 2016 in the Great Smoky Mountains. What started out as some matches being thrown around a campsite turned into over 10,000 acres of forest area being burned and about $2 billion in damages. This took place in late winter when there was a drought and the woods were mostly bare and dry. Though firefighters tried to extinguish the fires, the high winds made the spread of the blaze uncontrollable. 
And what was everyone waiting on? Rain. Rain, which eventually did come, brought an end to the fires and was the means by which the Smokies were largely saved from the fire continuing to do more damage. But was it the floodwaters by which Noah was saved? Or was it the ark? Weren't the floodwaters used as an instrument to destroy the wicked? Peter isn't saying that the waters were salvation, but that they were judgment. They were the judgment on the people for their sin. David says, and this is how water is often used in the Old Testament, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. Again in verse 15 of that same psalm, May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. If Noah and his family were to survive the judgment of God, they couldn't go around it, they couldn't go over it, no one gets away from it, they had to be saved through it. I'll give you two points of application briefly as we conclude verse 20. Let's pan way out for a second. No one gets away from the judgment of God. Biblically, you are either going to internally endure the judgment of God or you will be saved through the judgment of God. Is there anyone here today who's been ignoring that conviction of the coming judgment? What if you make it your whole life What if you make it your whole life without suffering any of the wrath of God in this life? What will you do when on judgment day the book of life is opened and the names in it are read and you stand there knowing that you never settled your accounts with God and you are waiting with fear and dread but maybe thinking somehow my name got in there but you know it won't. And when it isn't, what will you do when with death and Hades, you too are thrown into a different kind of baptism, the lake of fire? And there, in that place, there will be no way out. What was the means of Noah's salvation? Not water, but the ark. What protected Noah and his family? The ark. The wrath of God laid so heavily on the earth such that all life was destroyed and the fragile eight souls in verse 20 were protected completely to the uttermost. The torrent of the waves and rain fell on the ark. It bore the burden and protected God's beloved. I'll give you another modern example. Back to the chimney tops two fires. One of the most terrifying videos I've ever seen on the internet was cell phone footage of two men and a dog escaping the flames just outside of Gatlinburg. They had waited way too long to get out, and by the time they got in their SUV, the fire was all around them. Their only chance of survival was staying in their vehicle and driving as fast as they could to prevent the car from overheating and the tires from popping. In the end, their plan miraculously worked, and they escaped through the flames in their car. Beloved, 
the ark that saves you through the flood of God's judgment today is the person of Jesus Christ, the vehicle of salvation to protect you from the flames of the eternal punishment of God is the blood of the spotless lamb. The flames of judgment are no laughing matter. They are painful and they are real. And we don't often say this, but it is true. They are right and they are good. Your sin and mine deserves eternal punishment. Will you not now, lost one, look to Christ to save you from the punishment that you so rightly deserve? He can and will save all who come to Him. For those of you here today who are in Christ, there is good news for you. There is no more judgment. Christians worry about a lot, too much perhaps. We forget that God clothes the world each year with new raiment and makes sure birds have the food that they need and that He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But these things we often forget. We say to ourselves, sure, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but what about the a thousand and first hill? Who owns those cattle? I think Bill Gates does. <laughs> Beloved, you can't forget this. In Christ, the flood of God's wrath has fallen to Jesus. There is a promise now that there will never again be a flood. This is an encouragement to Christians in that there will never arise again for us for all eternity one more ounce of wrath from God. Have you considered the strategy of Satan to co-opt the sign of the rainbow to promote sin today? That sign was put in the clouds by God to remind the world that God had dealt with sin through judgment. By the way, what is above the throne of Jesus right now in heaven? That's right, a rainbow. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan hates the fact that we are eternally free from God's judgment and he is eternally destined for it. Beloved, you may fear that your faith will fail, but let me tell you this, Christ will hold you fast. For those of you who struggle to think that you will not make it in the end, that God will get fed up and tired with you, that He'll lose His temper and patience, and He'll cast you out of the kingdom, hear the encouraging words of J.I. Packer. Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Amen. Well, let's look together at verse 21. We know that in order for the people of God to be saved, they must be saved through the wrath of God, through the judgment of God. Noah and his family needed to be saved through the waters. And Peter says in verse 21 that baptism saves us. But first he says, baptism corresponds to this, meaning the flood. The Greek word here is the word antitupos, which means antitype. That's where we get our word from. And part of the problem with interpreting passages like these is that in our Western literal interpretive tradition, we have lost a basic understanding of typology. There is a type and there is an antitype. There is something promised and there is a fulfillment. 
In their helpful biblical theology, Kingdom Through Covenant, Kenneth Gentry and Stephen Wellam define typology in these terms. Typology is the study of Old Testament salvation historical realities or types which are persons, events, or institutions which God has specifically designed to correspond to and predictively prefigure their intensified, antitypical fulfillment aspects inaugurated and consummated in New Testament salvation history. Now that's a mouthful. Let me try and explain. According to Gentry and Wellam, a type is a moment in Old Testament history in which God's people were saved from judgment and damnation through a person, event, or an institution. These each prefigure an intensified antitype in the New Testament. I'll give you four characteristics of typology. Number one, they're rooted in historical, textual realities. That is to say that the events that are the types actually happened. It wasn't a story that was written about the Old Testament that the writers made up and said, oh, this will correspond to this new religion we've made up to say, okay, this is where our New Testament came from. These were actual historical events that took place. Typology is also prophetic and predictive, meaning it speaks to something that is coming in the future. Typology always follows a promise within a fulfillment pattern. And it always follows an, use a Latin term, a fortiori pattern, which is a lesser than culminating in the greater. I'm sure several types have popped into your mind as you've read through our Bible reading this year. We've read about Adam, who was the first man, and in the New Testament, Christ being the last man, the final man. We've read about, in our passage today, the flood and how its corresponding antitype or fulfillment is baptism. You've read about the sacrifice of Isaac and then also corresponding to the sacrifice of Christ. Joseph, the Savior of Israel in the Old Testament, and Jesus, the true Savior of Israel. You've read about the Passover lamb. And then, of course, Jesus, the perfect lamb of God. I've mentioned in sermons before about Joshua, who brought Israel into the promised land. Moses couldn't get them across the Jordan. He could only bring them up to it. But it was Joshua who brought them into the promised land. And Christ, of course, brings his people into the promised land of the new covenant. David is also the first and greatest king of Israel. Christ is the ultimate king of his people Israel. There's the temple of God in the Old Testament and then the temple or the fulfillment of the temple in the New Testament which is us, the church of Jesus Christ and so on and so on. There are so many types in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in the New. So Peter says that baptism is the antitype. That's literally what he says. It is the antitype of the flood. It is such in that it was predicted and prophesied in the flood. It is the fulfillment of what was promised in the flood. And it is the greater reality of what the flood pointed to. Now let's flesh this out some. First, in the flood, the world was submerged in water. 
And we, by the way, in baptism are submerged. That's literally what the word baptism means. It means to immerse or plunge into the water. The world died and in baptism we also die. Submersion in water portrays death. Many of you know some of our friends from Basswood, Lauren and Kate Juarez. They have a baby swim survival class they teach. As young as six months old, they can teach a baby to fall into a pool and it can turn over on its back with its face up so it can breathe and to survive in the water. Now, this is a really novel thing. It's very new. Within the last 50 years, people have been developing the methods to teach youngest children how to do this. But for the history of the world, water has not been viewed as safely as we perhaps view it today. For us, it's a form of entertainment, but it was not so in biblical times. Most people didn't know how to swim, and they wouldn't risk getting in the water because of infections, or maybe there were wild animals in the water, or if they had drowned, so on and so forth. Those alive and around before Peter's writing would have seen the water with a healthy dose of trepidation. Put more simply, immersion is meant to be the picture of death to us. It is meant to be us dying and then, of course, rising again. Sinful humanity was drowned in the flood and our sin was washed away in coming to Christ of which baptism is an outward expression. Finally, the world emerged from the flood as essentially a new creation, and we emerge from our baptism to walk, as Paul says in Romans 6, in newness of life. So we have here a number of correspondences between the flood and Christian baptism. Then how does baptism save you? How does baptism save you? Some of you might be wondering, Chris, Peter says baptism saves you. Does it save you? What if I was to answer this question by saying no and yes? Beloved, I, I want to offer just a word of caution. When we come to the Word of God and we see a writer of the New Testament say something like baptism, which corresponds to the flood, now saves you, and we bring our preconceived notions to the text, we might be saying something rightly, which is that baptism does not, in fact, get you justification before God, but we might also negate something that the author wanted us to learn from the text. <coughs> Chris, it wouldn't make sense to say that baptism does not save you, but it also does save you. We know that it doesn't save you. Let me ask the question a different way. Are baptism and repentance and faith distinct from one another? Theologically and technically speaking, yes, they are. Paul said, for Christ did not send me to baptize. He told the Corinthian church, he didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You'll remember that Corinth was, in many ways, like Paul's middle school ministry. There were cliques and favorite leaders and people bragging about who had baptized who. But Paul said that baptism wasn't the big thing. It wasn't the main thing. The gospel and faith and repentance 
was his mission. That was his errand. That was what he was sent out by Christ to do. In Romans, in Romans, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. No mention of baptism. Jesus said in Mark 16 that the rock on which his church would be built was the profession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is confirmed that baptism is not salvific when Jesus told the thief on the cross that he would be that day with Christ in paradise. And of course the thief on the cross was not baptized before he died. To make the argument ad absurdum, if the Ethiopian eunuch, upon hearing Philip reveal Christ to him from the prophet Isaiah, had gotten up from his chariot to make his way to the water to be baptized, and in his jubilation he had forgotten to look both ways and was run over by another chariot, he would not have been prevented from entering paradise. Pastor Doug Wilson says, If you want to slice it very thin, you are not saved by your baptism. I'll say this one more time. In the great story of the salvation of fallen humanity, Christian baptism is not salvific. We at Christ the King are a five solas church. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Cristo, and Soli Deo Gloria. That is that we believe that the Scriptures alone are our authority for life and godliness that it is by God's grace alone revealed to us in those scriptures that we are saved, that it is by faith alone, which is a grace given to us by God, that we believe and are saved. It is by faith in Christ alone that we procure that salvation that He merited us on the cross and in His resurrection. And it is all for the glory of God alone that God wrote the story this way. My glory, He says, I will share with no other. So what then does Peter mean when he says baptism now saves you? What we have to understand, beloved, is that though baptism is not salvific, and I'll say it again, it is not the power of God for salvation. The gospel is. However, the writers of the New Testament very often speak of baptism and salvation together as an event that takes place at the same time. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Peter said to them, Repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's from Acts chapter 2. Or from Romans 6, which I mentioned earlier, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And one more verse from Galatians chapter 3. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for 
all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. These verses each show that in the mind of the apostles, who were the inspired writers of the New Testament, one's repentance and faith in Christ is ordinarily and biblically seen in connection with one's baptism. Let me give you an example. Something a little bit more current that might help you relate to this. Tammy and I were married on June 25th, 2005. We took our vows shortly after 3 p.m. in the evening in what may be the most significant part of the ceremony for me. I put a wedding band on her finger and said, with this ring, I thee wed. Why is that such a significant part of the service? Nobody actually thinks that the wedding ring is the marriage. The metal on Tammy's finger does not do anything magical that suddenly makes her my wife. But this is the normal means, or you might say a sign which signifies the ultimate reality that accompanies marriage. Today, when you see someone with a wedding ring, you ask them, oh, when did you get married? We see that the two are linked together, though there is distinction there. This is not my marriage. If I were to take it off or lose it, I'm still married. But this is the symbol of my marriage to my wife. I believe the writers of the Bible and Peter saw baptism and salvation in the exact same way. In New Testament times, people would make a profession of faith and when they made that profession of faith, they knew that they might lose family members, they might lose friends, they might lose a job, they might die. Then they were going to go get in water, which wasn't something they did very often. It was a little scary. And then someone was going to put them under that water, which many of them may have never had done. And then they were going to come back out of that water. And what an encouragement to a soul. I was buried and yet I'm alive. I live again. When Peter says baptism now saves, he anticipates that there's likely going to be a misunderstanding. So he makes a distinction between baptism and salvation when he says, with the ESV, not a removal of dirt from the body. Now, I don't prefer this translation of the verse because the Greek word here is not the Greek word for body. I know there's a lot of children in our church who are taking Greek lessons right now. Can any child in this room tell me what the Greek word for body is? Does anyone know? What is it, Judah? Soma. Soma. Yes, your soma is your body in Greek. Very good. The soma is not the word that is used here. It's actually the word sarx, which means flesh. It means skin, but it also often carries with it in the New Testament a connotation of morality. So in the Young's Literal Translation, it says, not putting away the filth of the flesh. Peter would say baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not putting away the filth of the flesh. Peter's readers would have understood the play on words. Everybody knows that immersion in water may remove some physical filth. It may take some dirt off your skin, but it can't remove your moral filth. 
This is meant to make sure you don't see baptism in a wooden or mechanical way. It is not the means of salvation. So then, Chris, what does it do? In New Testament times, it was the outward ordinance that revealed an inward reality, namely a request or an appeal to God. The ESV uses the word appeal, which I think is a good word to use in verse 21. Literally, the Greek is to ask a question. Again, from the Young's literal translation. But the question of a good conscience in regard to God. Your ESV uses the word appeal to help you understand where this is headed. At baptism, believers come to request that God wash them clean from their sins and give them a clear conscience. What did Peter say in Acts 2? He had just finished preaching. The people were cut to the heart and they said, what do we do? And he said, come forward and make your request to God. And they said, okay. And they went and they got baptized. It wasn't the baptism that saved them, but the request, the appeal that they made in their heart to God that saved them, of which baptism was the ceremony, of which baptism was the outward sign. Listen to how the author of Hebrews says it. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way in which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Theologian Tom Schreiner summarizes this way. Believers at baptism can be confident on the basis of the work of the crucified and risen Lord that their appeal to have a good conscience will be answered. Wayne Grudem says it this way. To be baptized rightly is to make such a request to God. Please God. As I enter into this baptism, which will cleanse my body outwardly, I'm asking you to cleanse my heart inwardly. Make my sins gone. Forgive me and make me right before you. And you can see in New Testament times how so often the preaching of the gospel was followed by a repentance, faith, and baptism, how it would be seen in Peter's mind as those two things going together. Over the last few weeks of prayer meetings... Several have mentioned how we have God's ears. I'm fond of hearing this and it encouraged me to pray more earnestly for God's power to be manifested in us. Christians can be assured that they have the eyes and the ears of their Father in heaven. But do you know who else has the eyes and ears and celebration of God? One sinner who finds repentance. One sinner who finds repentance. The basis for salvation is not baptism and not even, if you will hear me, the basis for salvation is not even your faith. It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The end of verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is by faith that we receive salvation and through baptism that it is visibly displayed. Remember that getting baptized in the early church 
was often a death sentence. But it is on the cross that your sin was ultimately dealt with and in the resurrection from which your hope of eternal life is based. Let me give you just a few application points at the end of verse 21. Baptism and even the moment of your conversion are not the place for the hope of your salvation. It is a blessed means of remembering your union to Christ, but it is not sufficient for you before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, keep looking to Christ, the cross, and the resurrection. So often, pastors have people come and say, I can't remember when I became a Christian. I cannot remember the moment of my conversion. I can't remember when Christ came and dwelt in me. I'm not even sure if it was before or after my baptism. Christ and His work for us is our salvation. And it is by continually looking to Christ that all of those problems are dealt with. This is what John encourages us in his first letter. You look to Christ. He is the securing of your salvation. I'll say secondly though, as a point of application, baptism is not insignificant. We have largely separated it in the church today from its biblical context, either by putting it at the beginning of a person's life when there is no conversion and, as Peter says here, there would be no cognition for an infant to make a request to God. Or people would put it too long after conversion, waiting for some kind of age of accountability, or even some churches wait for a child to reach a legal age. They need to reach 18. Baptism is to be administered to those who are old enough to make an appeal to God for a clean conscience. And yes, different families are going to discern this in different ways in their children. So there should be no enmity that arises between brothers and sisters who differ slightly on the timing. But the New Testament does not permit applying it before the appeal is made nor withholding it from those who do. Lastly, what should you do if you went through with a ceremony and you know it was before you dealt with your sin before God? Before you saw the crucified Christ as sufficient for your salvation and before you made a real appeal for His forgiveness, I would ask you simply this. Have you been baptized? If baptism is your request, biblically speaking, it's seen as that request to God, I'm coming forward in faith and repentance, and that's when it takes place. I would ask you, if there was a ceremony that happened in your younger days, but then you came to Christ, and you're sure of that, I would ask you the question, have you been baptized? This is my story. I was wet when I was 12 years old. I think I've told this story a little bit before. I um, saw my brother going forward to pray the prayer. Our church told us to pray the prayer and go through with the ceremony, and so we did. But neither of us had trusted in Christ. Neither of us had done away with our sin and put that behind us. And it was only later in life, after talking with the elders at Basswood, that I realized my conversion was a real dramatic experience. For me, it was. It's not for everyone, but it was for me when I was 18 years old. And I asked the elders at Basswood, what should I do? And they asked me the same question. Have you been baptized? And I said, no. And that for me was the answer to the question. 
And so I decided in 2015 to move forward with baptism, and it was a blessed and wonderful experience, and I am glad that I went forward with that. I would ask you to consider, have you been baptized? Now, in conclusion, I'll end this morning's message the way Peter concludes the chapter with verse 22. Where is Christ now? You remember, this is all about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Christ has gone into heaven. This is not a ghost world, but a real place, more real than we are where we are now, which has spatial properties and is being prepared to be brought to earth and married forever after and married forever after to the earth as one final resting place for Christ and his bride. Jesus is at the right hand of God right now. This is, as I mentioned at the beginning, known as the session of Christ. He is seated at God's right hand. This is a reference to the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament, and that is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. After the ascension of the Messiah, having sat down in the place of honor next to the Father to his right, the only promise in redemptive history left to be fulfilled is that all of Christ's enemies will be made footstools for his feet. Should I say spoiler alert at this point? This is the summary of how the rest of redemptive history will go. That's it. That's the rest of the story. We live in the age of that promise being gradually fulfilled. It may not seem like it right now, but this is and will one day completely be carried out. Jesus says in Luke 12, in the midst of all of your suffering and trials, frustrations and indwelling sin, Jesus says in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Are you worried about food shortages, beloved? Are you worried about wars and rumors of wars? What if the global elites continue to let inflation explode in every area so that they can weed out the middle class and rob us of our businesses and homes and freedom? What if they mandate public schooling or criminalize biblical morality beyond what they already have? What if we live our whole lives and never see the world turn around and head back in the right direction? What if your kids never see it? What if your grandkids never see it? This is exactly why Peter gives us the picture of the risen and reigning Christ. All that remains in redemption history is for the enemies of Christ to be placed one by one underneath His feet. Currently, the angels, authorities, and powers are subject to Him. You see that in verse 22. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. This is a clear reference back to the victory He has proclaimed over those angels that rebelled against Him in the days of Noah. This is also likely a summary of different ranks of different kinds of angelic beings, but we don't have time to get into that today. Beloved, you cannot be surrendered to the powers of the forces of darkness any longer. They're underneath Jesus' feet. Jesus rules over these and will one day have every one of His enemies under His feet. So what need have we 
to fear. You have been buried with Christ when you repented and then were baptized. And you came out of those waters alive just as you will come out of every trial, even the one that might lead to your death. You'll still come out of it alive in the end. So be strong, be courageous. Beloved, we will win. Start smiling. Christians ought to grow up with the most pronounced smile lines on their faces. Turn the music up loud in your home, fathers. Raise your hands in thankfulness to the Father as you sing in front of your family. Sing with your kids. Dance with your wife in front of your children. Vocalize the victory of Christ to your neighbors. Walk out your door each day convinced that there is nothing more this world can do to shake your confidence in Christ. Be fearless as you serve King Jesus. Tell your whole family, we're going on a bear hunt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have set your king in Zion, your holy hill, and that he is breaking to pieces one by one the enemies that will not bow the knee to him. I ask if there are any of those enemies here today who have truly not dealt with their sin before this Christ that they would see that He is truly reigning and that their sin and His righteousness is a big problem and that they would be aware of the coming judgment and that they would repent and that they would see Christ and that they would put their faith in Him and be saved, even the children in this room. Lord, I also ask for those of us who are struggling to find joy, to find peace, wrestling with fear, wrestling with anger and frustration, that we too would look to Christ, risen, seated to the right hand of you right now in heaven, ruling and reigning, and that nothing will ever change that, and that we would put away all the enmity and strife in our hearts, especially our selfishness and wanting to have so much control over our world when you are the one who said you are in all control. Please give us back to seeing that risen Christ, that crucified lamb, that risen Savior for us, that we might find joy and walk as baptized people in newness of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, we are going to transition the room now into our fellowship hall, and we are going to share a meal together. Our worship will continue. So if you're a guest with us, you are welcome to stay for our fellowship meal. We do take communion in the middle of our fellowship meal, and if you've got questions about how we do communion, on the back of the bulletin, there's a paragraph or two about how we do communion at Christ the King. If you have any questions about that, you can come talk to myself, Jeremy, or Daniel, and we will give you more information on how we do Christ, uh, communion at Christ the King. As we conclude, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>